The scripture reading for today comes from Matthew chapter 21, verse 28, to Matthew chapter 22, verse 14. That's Matthew chapter 21, verse 28 to 22, 14. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one in front of you under the seat. You can, that one you can turn to page 776. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Hear now the word of the Lord. What do you think? A man had two sons, and he went, he went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said, the first. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. Here another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a winepress in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent, another serv- he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner, of the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and Pharisees heard this parables, heard his parables, they received that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and, it, and his sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite the wedding feast as as many you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests." But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. 
In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, everybody. Let's pray before we begin. Almighty God, in you are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Open our eyes that we may see the wonders of your word and give us grace that we may clearly understand and follow the way of your wisdom. We do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. Make us hunger for this heavenly food that it may nourish us today in the ways of eternal life that we may feast on Jesus Christ, the bread of heaven, and aid your servant in bringing forth the word of God that he may glorify you, and aid your people to hear these words of life as they are the words of God. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Uh, I heard a lot of people were sick, and a lot of babies were sick. So glad you can make it today. Um, we should have like little tags if you're sick, so that we could keep a little bit of a distance until you're better. But uh, I'm glad you are able to make it today. Um, starting off the year with, you know, just, I guess, crazy weather, temperatures going up and down, uh, might be difficult for our bodies to cope with. And I know there was uh, a flu-like bug going around, a lot of people with the flu, and hope uh, for a good recovery. We did end the retreat a week ago, and I have been thinking for a long time what kind of retreats we should have. We usually do a retreat in a hotel in East Rutherford, about 20 minutes from here, for about three days. And I had always thought, is it, uh, is it just me? But it, would it be just nice to get away into like maybe the mountains, perhaps, and get away from all the distractions and just sit in biblical teachings? So I have been thinking and praying about, you know, perhaps in the future, uh, we could just go away and then for a full weekend, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and just sit in biblical teaching, sound doctrine, listen to the word of God. And I think one of the things that we get to experience every Sunday is we get to come here and we get to sit and listen to biblical teaching. This makes me excited, um, especially, especially when I'm listening and le- learning. Uh, but it gets me exciting because, it gets me excited because, uh, a lot of times I wonder if we are listening to the right thing. What are we listening to? What are you watching? I had joked, I think, in the New Year's Eve service that I had watched some K-drama. K-drama, of course, stands for Korean drama, not K-drama like what drama in Spanish, but it's K-drama, Korean drama. So a lot of you know this, and I got bored of it really quickly. Um, you know, because what is it that the message that we're sitting in, I get, I get it, at, at some points you just take a break and it's an easy watch. You get emotionally pulled here and there, this person dies and they cry for like 20 minutes. And then, so I get it. And then I get, I get the American dramas too, like everybody's just sleeping with each other. I guess that's just the way it is. And, I, you know, one, at, at a certain point you're like, ah, when am I going to get to the good things in life, the true things in life? the eternal things in life. 
and uh, I was browsing through a streaming service, and they had a show that they, were, they created called Messiah. I was like, this sounds really interesting. I can't, wait to, I can't wait to watch this, especially to see what their take is. And my wife warned me, don't watch this. It'll only get you upset. And so uh, I saw the trailer for it, and I was like, wow, this seems really interesting. I just want to see how how true they are to our Orthodox understanding of what Messiah is, Jewish Christian, uh, Orthodox understanding of Messiah. And um, she warned me, so I said, I guess I won't watch it. Then I met up with a friend, and he goes, you know, did you see this show called Messiah? It's really good. And then I thought, ah, either he must be a very weak Christian. No, I didn't think that. Uh, I was like, maybe I will give it a watch. So I watched an episode, and it's like, what in the world? And then I watched the second episode, and I got so upset. It's like, there is no way. And then my wife was like, told you not to watch it. So I, I didn't finish it. It's just horrible. Uh, it doesn't make any, there's no congruity in the storyline. It's not connected to any religion. It's just basically a universalism kind of con artist, whatever it is. I, I'm, not, I'm not ruining anything. I'm just saying the story is terrible. And so I just stopped watching and uh, wasted. I wasted my precious life. I don't have that much left, and I wasted it. So what is it that we're doing here, though? Isn't it that when we gather together, we're looking at the eternal, what is good, what is precious, what's going to last? And shouldn't that get us all excited? Shouldn't we long for that kind of teaching? And so... This is what we get to do, um, whether it's in a retreat or whether we come here every Sunday to sit in biblical teaching. So these next set of three parables that was read today are clearly different. If you've been paying attention, if you read the parable along, and uh, I believe you have, unless you were just dazing off, uh, but they are clearly different from the parables that we've been hearing from Jesus so far. For one thing, for one thing, if you if you read it along, people responded. When did that ever happen? People responded. And the second thing is, some people, if not all the people in that crowd, they understood what the parable meant, at least to a certain degree. This has not happened before. This is a new thing. Matthew has three parables, right, in sequence, uh, in this event, in sequence, and Mark and Luke tells of one parable, which is the middle parable that was read, which is the parable of the tenants, which would lead us to believe that if we read all these parables together, these three are connected. Again, Matthew has three parables, but the middle parable is told again by Mark in Mark 12 and Luke in Luke 20, and this would lead us to believe these three are connected. Furthermore, the connecting words used in each parable, so every time there is another parable, there are connecting words, it should reinforce in this understanding that these three are tied together somehow. In verse 33, he goes, here, another parable. In chapter 2, verse 1, he goes, and again, Jesus spoke, right? So he starts off, Jesus starts off by saying, what do you think? This is connected previously to what we heard last week when they question Jesus' authority. What do you think? This gives us an understanding that now Jesus is telling these parables and purposefully engaging the crowd in the temple. And he goes, what do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. 
But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same, and he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. In this parable, the father goes to the first son and tells him to go to work in the vineyard today. But then he says, I mean, he says no, but then he changes his mind and goes afterwards. And there's a second son that he goes to and he says yes, but doesn't go. Not only does he say yes, but if you look at the language here, he adds the words sir, which is translated from kirios. And we have went over what kirios meant. It meant Lord. So it's a very, very high honorific term. It's an incredibly high honorific term that is attached to I go. So signifying this is an emphatic yes. Yes, sir, I will go. But in the end, doesn't go. So the first son says no, and it's in the, and the word is used, the Greek word used here is thalo, which is more like, I don't want to go. Nah, I don't want to go. But then he goes. So some of you may be somewhat confused because you thought, for some reason, the first son said yes but doesn't go, and the second one says no and does go. Because for, for many of us, we have all these like preconditioned learning that we've had. And when you actually read the Bible, it's like, wait, actually, the Bible doesn't say that. Where did we get that? And so it's the first son that says no and then goes. And it's the second son that says yes, but doesn't go. Because we want it to mean like the first son says yes, but doesn't go. The second son says no, but does go. Because we want it to mean this is about Jews and Gentiles. The Jews were first they said yes, but don't go, and the Gentiles were second, and they said no, but they do go. When you read this, it's not, that's not it. it. It doesn't say that. First means protost. Protost means first, and second, even though it's translated other, the word here is deuteros, which means second. So I mentioned this again, so we don't lose. Why do I keep on mentioning this? Because I hope that we don't lose the point by bringing in what we think we should see and not look at the text in context. Just like some other parables we have gone over before, just unlearning some preconditioned ways of assumed interpretations, I feel, for many of us, will take a while. Many of us have grown up in church, so decades and decades of perhaps hearing this story, maybe maybe you don't relate, maybe you're like, what? But hearing like, oh, the Jews are first, they said yes and no, but that's not actually what it says. Also, reading the next few verses would surely show you that this isn't about the Jews that were first and the Gentiles were second, right? Because in verse 31, Jesus asks the people. Remember how he started with, what do you think? What do you think? Right? So he asks them, which of the two did the will of his father? They said, the first, right? And Jesus says to them, truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you? The answer, it's the first son. This is a parable that they don't leave completely confused by. They get it. But something's a little off, isn't it? And if you're looking at this, something's a little off. What's going on? Because this is not usually the way he's done parables before. And Jesus goes after their response he goes, amen. Anytime we see truly, it's usually the translation of amen. So Jesus is amening his statement before he says that. Again, anytime we see Jesus say the word amen, this is going to be heavy. So tax collectors and prostitutes 
will go into the kingdom before you. Tax collectors and prostitutes were considered the lowest of the low on the moral scale. Tax collectors were sellouts and traitors to the Jewish people, people who sell out their own kind and extract money, extort money, so that they can enrich themselves and give to the government, the government that was oppressing them. Those tax collectors, vile, scum, vermin, prostitutes, the word porne. This is where we get that word porneia, which is sexually immoral. Prostitutes were also considered vile and so morally bankrupt because they had no regard for family institutions, sub with anyone who gave them money. But I wondered as we read this, I wondered how shocked we would be to hear the word prostitute. Unfortunately, in our day of soft porn, on even TV, in every movie, on our social media, perhaps we're not so shocked anymore. But back in the day, these two classes of people were held in the lowest esteem, so it would be shocking for them to hear this. So what's the distinction between the two sons? One is a public sinner, right? Prostitutes and tax collectors, public sinner, those on the outermost part of the moral scale, mind you. And who's the other one? You. You. So who's you? And Jesus goes, for John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And when you saw it, you did not afterwards change your minds and believe him. For John came to you. So now he's going to explain who you is. How did he come? In the way of righteousness. This is a better translation than the NIV, which says that he came to show you the way of righteousness. There's no word show. The Greek literally says in the way of righteousness meaning that John came preaching God's will as a prophet. John came preaching God's will as a prophet, and you did not believe him. So what did he preach? Repent and be baptized. That's what he preached. Repent, meaning turn. Stop doing the vile things that you were doing and be baptized. Turn to God. Start doing the things of righteousness. But the tax collectors and prostitutes believed him, meaning many of the disciples there from John were former tax collectors and prostitutes who repented. And even when you saw it, you literally saw these people repent and be baptized. You didn't change your mind and believe him. So who's you? The religious leaders. It's the leaders that just previously questioned Jesus' authority by attacking his character. Remember, if you can't attack the message, attack the person. These religious leaders saw the evidence of changed lives, and they were right in front of them and still chose not to believe. Jesus doesn't stop there, but he continues. Hear another parable. Now, this is the parable that we also see in Mark and Luke. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. The master does everything. He plants the vineyard, 
puts a fence or a wall around it to deter intruders from coming in, puts a watchtower so you can have a lookout for intruders or animals or uh, uh, people who would come in and pr uh, prey on those that are inside, and then leases it to tenant farmers. Tenant farming was a normal thing because people often took journeys for a long time. They didn't have planes, trains, or automobiles. You couldn't text message someone or call people, so you would either have to go yourself or deliver a letter, which meant someone was also gonna go the long way to deliver your message. In either case, the master, for whatever reason, goes into another country. This would have been very normal for the person listening. And when the season for fruit drew near, the master would send servants to get his fruit. This is also normal. Tenant farmers got to live on the land while the master was away, and the master was entitled to whatever portion was due to him in their agreement. Whatever it was and however much it was, he sends his servants to get the fruit. What did the tenant farmers do, though? It says they took the servants and beat one. Beat one was violently strike. It's to continue to punch in the head, violently strike. They beat one. They killed another and stoned another. This is cruel. This is insanity. Why would anyone do this is what people might be thinking. Once you heard this, it's like, why would anyone do this? But Jesus says again, he sent more servants the next time. And what do they do? They do this again to them. What kind of crazy, ungrateful, disrespectful, arrogant people would do this? Do they have a death wish? Do they have a death wish? But, but, Jesus doesn't even stop there. He goes on. And by this time, you can imagine, if you were listening, how incensed you would have been, how upset you would have been. This is just not right. This is his land. These are just tenant farmers. They just maintained. The owner did everything, and it all belongs to him. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. They took him, threw him out of the vineyard, and killed him. When the owner decides to send his own son, this would have sent shockwaves to the listeners, just across the whole crowd. This is too much. This is way too much. This is overboard. You should have killed them off. The first wave of servants. This would have been, in the very least, in the baffled mind of the listeners. It's too much lenience, almost to a point of negligence, too much grace. Initially, you would have thought that these tenant farmers are outrageously evil, right? What is going on with these crazy people? But when you hear of the master sending his own son, that's too much. I can't take it anymore. What? Now you may start even questioning the master's sanity. You already know the behavior of these people. Don't send him. He's your son. He's your heir. In Mark 12, it says that he sent, after all those servants, he had one other. It was his 
beloved son, the gasps and the groans from the crowd would have been audible. This is the ultimate shock. You thought the first two were shocking? This is the ultimate shock. This goes beyond comprehension. At first, you would have been shocked at how many servants he sent to die. But the sending of his beloved son? This is completely off the charts. This is just unheard of. But did the tenant farmers respect his son? No. This is his heir. Let's kill him and take his portion is what they said. So they took him, threw him out, and killed him. And some of you may already know this parable is an allusion to Isaiah chapter 5. God plants the vineyard, digs the wine press, builds the watchtower, everything you need to have a successful and thriving business and community. And you would also know that the first part of Isaiah, the book of Isaiah, chapters 1 through 5, is about judgment. It's about judgment. So listening to this crescendo and this buildup of the story, then Jesus asks the crowd, when therefore the owner comes, what will he do to those tenants? And how do they respond? At this point, they are enraged over what the tenant farmers did. And so they, go, they say, he will put those wretches to a miserable death. This is emphatic and a graphic response. He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give them the fruits in their seasons. But even after they respond with such force and emotion, it seems as though some people who were listening got and started to get what Jesus is talking about. He was talking about them. And they go in Luke 20, they go, surely not, surely not. Or another translation is, may it never come to pass. May it never come to pass after the judgment is proclaimed. We would say things like, God forbid, God forbid, right? As if we could forbid God if he wants to do anything. Or knock on wood, which is just a pagan way that you believe like spirits aren't trees. And if you knocked on wood, you would appease them. That's the origin of knock on wood. So it's like when you say something, it's, oh, please don't hurt me, and then you would knock on wood. That's a pagan origin saying. But that's what they would say. Surely not. May it never come to pass. People started to get what Jesus was talking about. He's talking about the listeners of his word that do not believe him and follow him. It's the second son. They are the people that don't listen. In fact, they are the ones that have killed, stoned, and beat every single one that God sent to them. The religious leaders, in the very least, knew their history. They had killed every one of their prophets. You know, I talked about Isaiah. Isaiah was sawn in half. They took him, and they sawed him in half to kill him. That's how upset they were at Isaiah's prophecy. Do you know Jeremiah, the, one, the guy right after Isaiah? Jeremiah was abused, thrown into a pit, and then he was eventually stoned to death by his own people in Egypt. Zechariah was stoned to death in, uh, as it says in 2 Chronicles, he was stoned to death in the temple on a Sabbath. 
He was in the temple on a Sabbath, and they hated him so much, it didn't matter when or where they went and killed him. Micaiah, when he prophesied in 1 Kings 22, he was punched and struck in the face for his prophecy. Amos was severely tortured and beaten to death, and we know that John the Baptist was beheaded. This is the history of Israel that Jesus is telling them in their faces. That's why they go, may it not, surely not, no, 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 may it not come to pass. As they were getting more and more incensed and angry at this story, this is just crazy. This is unbelievable. And they, they're going to put these wretches to a miserable death. I'm like, wait, 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 wait a minute. Wait, wait, that's us? That's what we always do to the religious leaders, the prophets that God sends. And they go, surely not. So what's the, what's the parable mean? The master is God. Isaiah 5, the master is God. The vineyard is the nation of promise, or Israel. The tenant farmers are the people and the religious leaders that were entrusted with promises, with the covenant, with the revelation, which is the law of God. This was an absolutely precious gift that they had been entrusted with. You know, I, the more and more we study the Bible, the more and more I believe that this is also what the church has been entrusted with. And people are like, you know, uh, people recently, more recently too, they've constantly asked me, what's your vision for this? How do you envision this? How do you see this? That's like, you know, if that were true, I would tell you like literally like, a thousand things. So let's start with the core. The word of God is central. The word of God is central to us, right? And if, I, if we did move, let's say, and we had to design the stage, how would we do it? You know, back in the day, they would have uh, the pulpit uh, because they believed that the word of God was so essential and precious. The pulpit, there would be a stage, but the pulpit would be raised like yay high. And whoever would be delivering the world would have to go up a circular set of stairs to go up on this. Not, not because whoever the dude was was great, but because of how they viewed the word of God. I believe that these days, what I would think would be amazing, because that, that's too much money, that's crazy, right? It would be, let's just get a huge pulpit. Let's just, I would like, that, that, that would be the dream. And... I don't care if it comes from the ceiling, comes up from the ground. I don't know. People are like, well, how are people going to lead you know, singing? I don't care. Whatever. But it will be a huge, huge pulpit so that you would see that the preacher is behind the word of God. The word of God is central. It's not me that you're looking at, but the word of God is central to our worship. And that's what you're looking at. That's a huge pulpit. You know, that, but... They saw that this was an absolutely precious gift that they had been entrusted with. And the fruit is the spiritual fruit that the word of God should have produced. A light to the nations, a blessing to those around them, the reverence for the Lord of lords, worship to the king of kings, obedience to the master. And this is what Jeremiah says. And you would think when people are listening to this, uh, Maybe that's why they were so upset at him. Maybe that's why he was abused, thrown into a pit and stoned to death. In Jeremiah chapter 25, verse 4, he, it, it, he says, You have neither listened nor inclined your ears to hear, although the Lord persistently, which means again and again and again, sent you all his servants and prophets, saying, Turn now, every one of you, from his evil way and evil deeds, 
and dwell upon the land that the Lord has given to you and your fathers from of old and forever. Do not go after other gods to serve and worship them or provoke me to anger with the work of your hands. Then I will do you no harm. Yet you have not listened to me, declares the Lord, that you might provoke me to anger with the work of your hands to your own harm. And just like in Isaiah chapter 5, Jesus later in Matthew 23 will pronounce curses and judgment on them. And you're going to hear, woe, woe, woe to you. You know, these people are in delusion. In verse 30 of chapter 23, he would say, Jesus would say, if we had, this is what Jesus is saying that they are saying, like the religious leaders of the day. If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. You know, if we lived in Jesus' time, if we lived in the prophets' time, we would not shed their blood. Thus, Jesus answers, thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you, going, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Later on in verse 37, he goes, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. Who is the son that is sent? Most obviously, it's Jesus Christ. This is not just any son. This is the only son. He is the beloved son. So that there, there should have been an expected, a rightfully expected reverence for his son and perhaps even the expectation that they would change. But did they? No. They said that this is the heir and he will take over. We must kill him. And this is exactly what happens. After Jesus finishes this final discourse in chapter 25, they immediately, in chapter 26, plot to kill him. Jesus here is telling his own murderers that they're going to kill him. For the past six months, Jesus has been telling his disciples that he will be murdered and that it will be the leaders of Jerusalem that would kill him. And here they are right in front of them. But these leaders and listeners have now pronounced their own judgment on themselves by saying that these wretched people will have a miserable death. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on the stone will be broken into pieces when it falls on anyone it will crush him. This quote that we see here is from Psalm 118, affirming the judgment that has been pronounced, but that the son that they would kill and reject would become the cornerstone or capstone, the head. Who has it, who has it been that, was, that this kingdom was taken away, and who is it that it will be given to? Who will be the people producing his fruits? So it will be taken away from the religious leaders and the people following them, and it will be given to 
the apostles. The apostles. This ragtag, boony, uneducated, uncouth people ranging from fishermen to zealots to tax collectors. And if you were to trip over a capstone, that means you would fall off the terrace or balcony. And if a capstone had dislodged and fell on you, you'd most obviously be crushed. Ironically, it's even after this very clear warning that they still go ahead and try to arrest him and try to kill him. When the chief priests and Pharisees heard these parables, they perceived that he was talking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. You know, this judgment is so sure, so complete, so devastating. Tell me right now, where's the priestly line? Where's the Jewish priestly line? Who's a Levite? Who's from the tribe of Gad? Who's from the tribe of Judah? You don't know because it was completely demolished. This system was so comprehensively, overwhelmingly demolished that we don't even know. Who's a Levi? We don't know that. You don't know that either. No one knows. No more priests. You can't even carry out sacrifices even if you wanted to. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables. And again, Jesus spoke literally written is, and again, Jesus answered speaking. Jesus was still answering or speaking to the Jewish leaders and the people here. That's why verse, uh, chapter 22 is still him in conversation with them questioning his authority. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. This time, the kingdom of heaven is used, and when it's used, it's to tell of a banquet, a wedding banquet that's for his son. Obviously, this is still connected to the son that has become the cornerstone. And this parable is about the wedding of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Many are invited, but no one cares. No one cares. They only care about their own day-to-day and their own businesses. They only care about, I just got to make sure my business is done. I got to make sure that my area is secure, that I am in a good place. In verse 6, he will even go on to say that the servants were mistreated and even killed, hearkening back to the previous parable. But the verses continue on, and in verse 7, judgment is executed. Verse 7, judgment is executed. This would have all been going back to the previous parable, And the previous parable before that and the verses going forward are new to the listeners. You see, with every parable, Jesus is going further. He's moving a little bit farther. He's pushing the line even more, showing us what actually he is intending. And the invitation has now gone even to the street corners with their instruction to invite as many as you can. I like how Jesus here adds both bad and good. That's what he literally says, both bad and good. In, in verse 10. And you see, um, there were those that were rigor, rigorously, they would try to adhere to the law, right? And that there, there were those that were just outright scoundrels, but all were invited and all were gathered. And so now the wedding hall 
is filled. And this is where it gets really interesting. But when the king, in verse 11, when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him out into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then he ends it almost like a mystery or enigmatically, for many are called, but few are chosen. So despite whether you are bad or good, unlike how Santa Claus really wants it, it doesn't matter, Santa Claus is garbage, but whether you are bad or good, there is proper wedding attire that you needed to have or you needed to be clothed with if you are going to this feast. The guy knew that he was wrong too because it says that when the king approached him, he was speechless. And the judgment is also pronounced to this guest who did not have proper wedding attire. And again, Jesus ends it with almost an enigmatic conclusion, for many are called but few are chosen. But if you think about it, is it really that mysterious? Many are invited and some refuse to come. There's judgment, okay? Some come but refuse to submit to the requirements of the kingdom. There's judgment. Then there are those who remain after all of that. These are the chosen. It's clear that from these parables, that even the parable from before when Jesus talked about the laborers in the vineyard, that it is not the beginning. It's not the beginning, but it is the end that is crucial. And it's the end that is completely under God's sovereign grace. It's completely by grace because we are invited. And it is God who chooses by what means we are to stay. That's sovereignty, okay? It's grace that we are invited. It's a sovereignty because he gets to decide how we are to stay. How do we worship God? It's clear and in his word. How do we serve God? It's clear and in his word. How do we love God? It's clear and in his word. I imagine that if you are listening to this message, because you have it is because you have received the invitation and you didn't reject it. However, however, we cannot think that we can worship God on our own accord or by our own means. We worship God according to his ordinances and his statutes. People who think, well, why can't I bark like a dog in a service? Why can't a worship service, like it feels good, why can't I just writhe on the floor? Why can't I laugh like a crazy person when I worship God? Because it's not in the word. It's not in there. Stop making stuff up. You're, you're dressed completely inappropriately. In fact, the point of 1 Corinthians, many epistles, I mentioned 1 Corinthians because we're going to go into 1 Corinthians later on this year, but 
Many other epistles is for us to be grounded in the word with the correct doctrines. And we are given the right doctrines from his prophets and his apostles. From his prophets and his apostles. God uses the prophets and the apostles to give us his word and the right doctrines through it. All other ways are abhorrent. They are not the right clothing or attire. So if you are a person and you want to belong to a good church, you need sound doctrine. Because sound doctrine does base two basic things. Number one, it protects us from false teaching. And number two, it promotes healthy spiritual fruit, like the kind that the master expects from his vineyard. Two dro- true doctrine is the teaching of our Heavenly Father revealed to us in His Son, Jesus Christ, transmitted to us in the Holy Scripture by the Holy Spirit. Christian leaders must warn people when they do not have the right attire and how to acquire it. When you listen to a message, it should be clear who is a Christian and who is not. That's the duty of a Christian leader. The church then must receive it confess it, and follow it, all for the glory of his name, our Lord and Bridegroom, Jesus Christ. My friends, this is not just a one-time happening thing. It's not, what is doctrine? Blah. (laughs) It's something that we study for the rest of our lives, and we study with joy. That's why when I'm saying in the beginning, when we sit under good teaching, when we sit under the Bible, it is a good thing, because now we are being clothed in righteousness. Now we are in the way of righteousness like John the Baptist was, and we are giving glory to our Lord and Bridegroom, Jesus Christ. You know how we know we are? Because we are doing what he's telling us to do. We're not just imagining, well, I guess Jesus would like it if I, you know, came in here and, you know, just started fireworks or something. It's just, that's not what it's about. It's not just about your feelings, the way we sing the way we read scripture, the way we listen to scripture, the way we do our confessions, the way we pray, all are informed in scripture. And this is what we are going to continue to learn as a church. And this is what gets me really, really excited. If you don't know Jesus Christ, know that he is the one that is giving us the invitation to come, but he's also teaching us how to have the right attire. And when you leave a service, when you leave any kind of service, what should you leave with thinking? Oh, I feel good? Actually, no. I've come to really firmly believe sometimes you should leave feeling really terrible because some of the sins are just horrible in your life and you need to change it right now. You need to change it right now. These sins are not glorifying your maker and they are not putting you closer to him, but you are cursing him by continuing to live out this life of sin. Like if you're living in sin, then I would say things like get married, stop living in sin, or break up. Those are like very clear things that we are taught. If you are stealing, stop stealing. Stop stealing. Don't steal from the government. Don't steal from your employer. Most importantly, don't steal from God. If you're living in sin, then stop it. So it doesn't, it's not about your feelings. But one thing you should leave with is after a service, you should leave with, 
that service glorified God. Jesus was glorified. That's the point. It doesn't matter how you feel. You could feel great, you could feel terrible, but you should walk out knowing that the service was meant to glorify God and give him all the praise and honor. That's what it means to be a follower of Christ. Let's pray.